You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. The pastors, Ben, Rachel, Julie, and I are answering questions that people ask. We're calling it Someone Asked, and we have a, a list of questions that we pick from each week to answer. And of course, we never pick the same question because we'll never answer it the same way. And these things are recorded and people can listen and compare the answers. So we don't answer the same questions each week. They're all different. But I like to do it because it's fun to answer questions to which we don't have uh, anything close to clear of an answer for. It's not really, we, we don't always know what we're talking about. Because the questions are kind of, can be lofty and difficult, but it's fun to explore in that environment. Theology is about imagining God. It's about uh, having a good imagination, right? And I think having one, having a a good imagination is a playful thing. So I, I think this should be fun and playful and imaginative. Faith, then, is a fun endeavor because it extends our mind beyond what we think is possible. And we take leaps of faith without always knowing exactly where we're going to land. So I hope that we can have some fun talking about something that our, be- our best guesses will probably be the closest we'll get. I, I, when we're dealing with these big subjects, that's kind of my approach. Because we're talking about a big one today. We're talking about human nature. Sometimes uh, the, the question asker in this case calls it a sinful nature. Do we have a sinful nature? This, this is a big subject. That definitely exceeds the, the scope of this message, this, this, what, what, the time that I have. Um, and it kind of exceeds the scope of all kind of the paper and the ink in the world. Right? It's a big subject. But how great is it at all to have a chance to imagine what seems to be impossible and share what we imagine about it? I like that huge canvas, that huge playground that I get to uh, paint on and live in and get to play in. And despite the vastness of the universe... Despite the magnitude of the universe, the things we say matter. And they, they matter to how we live our lives now. And I think they matter to God too. And I think they matter to the people in this room as well. And they get better when we have dialogue together. God is among us. The Spirit of God resides in us. Dialogue thus keeps us connected. Our our mutuality makes our clouded vision a little bit clearer. Our mutuality makes our clouded vision clearer. That we're doing it together clarifies. Not fully, but it brightens the lights a little bit more. And isn't that the truth of it? We don't really see clearly. That's okay. But I think it's important to acknowledge that because it isn't that appealing for someone to say... I'm not really sure, because sometimes we have expectations of our leaders or pastors or theologians or whatever, where I'm not sure isn't a very adequate answer. But the comedy of philosophy is the certainty with which people speak about it. 
right? It's rather absurd to be that certain. We don't really know. We do know something, and we do know better together, but we don't really know, right? Now we see through a glass darkly. I was talking to my friends the other day about uh, the, the, the uh, trouble in the world, which I often do, and I was thinking about these strong men, and they happen to be men in this case, that um, seem to be rising up with some popularity. This is the cover of Foreign Affairs magazine, this last issue. So you have, so you probably know some of these people, right? She is right in the middle. Duterte is in the mix. He's a brute. Um, Orban of Hungary is there as well. Putin, you might know him. He pops up in American politics sometimes too. Um, Erdogan of Turkey is there too. So these, these are, these are just the cast of uh, figures here. And there's more you could add to the list. And we were remarking about how kind of terrible people they are, at least from what we can observe. And also noting that there's kind of this rise of uh, autocratic leadership in formerly democratic countries, right? Bolsonaro in Brazil. Uh, we we kind of have an aspiring autocrat here in the United States. Um, Trump, if you don't know what I was talking about. Um, <laughs> and then they got a guy in, uh, named Boris in the UK, right? This is, this is another interesting person. Um, sorry, I laugh because sometimes they're amusing in, in how they present themselves, but they're, 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 uh, their uh, autocracy is, is dangerous and the things they do are horrible. Um, and, 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 and I know when I say that you're going to think I'm partisan, like I'm partisan on Duterte, you might think, or something like that, which would be a wild thought, but that's the era we live in where naming evil is a political statement for some reason. But we were talking about these people that seem to manifest evil and the things that they do, and we wondered, is this just how people are? Is this just the human condition? Are people bad? Do people do bad things because they're malicious or because they're ignorant? We didn't come up with an answer to that. We went back and forth for a while. But I thought our lack of answer uh, uh, leaned us towards ignorance as a primary factor here. Why? Because we we didn't know. We're obviously ignorant. So there's something we we don't see very clearly, do we? And I think that our lack of clarity is probably why we act the way that we do. It's not an excuse for reprehensible behavior. But I, I think we're missing something. So then what is the nature of humans? This is, I, I, I don't have an answer to this question. Do we have a sinful nature? I don't know. It's a fun question on one hand, but it also, how we answer it has a tangible, practical use to us today. Individually, it affects how we think of ourselves, how we think of our, uh, ourselves psychologically and otherwise, right? I have to remind myself every day that I'm not a terrible person because I have a script in my head that tells me I am all the time. Right? I have to, I have to keep reminding myself to do it, of the opposite. And then, as a collective, it matters because what we think of the stuff we're made of affects what we can do together. So, like I started with, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this huge question. Maybe you have an idea that you can share later, but I do have some understanding about how some Christian thought has developed about this idea over time. So I want to survey some of the Bible briefly before we get to where I think the Bible is taking us. 
So we can start with the beginning, right? This is Genesis 1. This is the creation narrative in the first, the first creation narrative in the Bible. There's another one that follows it in Genesis 2. God creates the world out of chaos, and at the end of it says it was very good. This is Robert Alter's translation. They're still making new translations of the Bible, and this is the newest Old Testament translation. Someone out loud, read this. And God saw all that he had done, and look, it was very good. And it was evening, and it was morning, the sixth day, Genesis 1. Very good. So we know, first, first page of the Bible, that we were created very good. Okay, so is that our nature? What is natural to us? Is that we're good? It doesn't seem that way because I can see this and then I suffer cognitive dissonance because I see the horror in the world, right? Cue the image of Duterte. And this very good thing that I'm living in kind of sucks because it's not that good. It kind of seems bad. Like really bad all the time, right? That's so, I don't know if this is, I don't know if it's very good. I don't know if your plan worked out. God. I mean, sometimes I'm that negative. And so let's keep reading Genesis, and you'll see how the composer of Genesis tells us about all the evil. Creation was good, but evil and death are introduced when the creatures disobey God. That's the main point of Genesis chapter 3 here. And in this account, it's the, it's the woman who disobeys God when she listens to the serpent, and, and then the other human in the garden, the man, disobeys God along with her. Here's the, here's the encounter. Someone, someone out loud read, this is Robert Alter again. I'm giving you a different translation in part because some of you have this, have like whatever version you grew up with seared into your mind. So let's just break it up a little bit. So, so you can imagine it in a new way. Someone else. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating and that it was lust to the eyes and the tree was lovely to look at and she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her man with her, and he ate. And the eyes of the two were opened. They knew that they that they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. Genesis three six and seven. God, after this, thanks, Kristen, casts them out of the garden, where they when they disobey him, and now the la- now labor and death and toiling are a part of their life. And the writer, it's the writer's way of explaining evil in the world. Here's what happened. Humankind disobeyed God. Right? Third chapter of Genesis, we're trying to explain how evil is working in the world, what's actually happening. And then the Bible will repeatedly do that in a, in a number of other ways throughout the whole story. That's how it works. We're trying to figure this out. God casts out the disobedient here. Bible nerd um, context final composition of Genesis given to people in Babylonian captivity. So they're hearing their same story again. Oh, we disobeyed, so we're cast out of Jerusalem. We're cast out of Israel, and now we're in Babylonian captivity. You see how it's the same motif happening right there? So it's a contextual thing. It matters to the people. It's speaking to them in a direct way. That's probably a, a, a good way to start reading the Bible, is to imagine how, how this affects the very people that are reading it. But the way that the, the writer of Genesis introduces evil in the world and into humanity is about disobedience to God. That's why we do bad things, because we disobey God, not because of our nature. So he's not making an argument about nature, or she's not making an argument about nature. Because I don't think, 
And, and, and it's not making a principle out of that. I don't think nature is a part of their thinking. Does humankind have a proclivity to disobey God? I don't know. I'm not sure what the Old Testament's answers to that are, but I do think that God repeatedly offers compassion and grace to Israel. So I'm not sure what God, I'm not sure that God thinks we're hell-bent on disobeying because God loves us, gives us another chance, knows we can do it. That's what it seems to me. But then you get into some more of the philosophy that begins us to think about the nature of humankind when you get to the old, the New Testament, because that's more of a Greek idea anyway. So the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 makes the distinction between people who are living in the spirit and living in the flesh. But he doesn't appear to say which one uh, is more natural than the other. So living in the spirit on one shoulder, living in the flesh on the other. That's the emperor's new group. That's what I was working with. Uh, when I did that. Someone out loud read eight, uh, Romans 8, 1 through 2. This is N.T. Wright's translation. Therefore, Go ahead. There is no condemnation for those in the Messiah, Jesus. Why now? Because the law of the spirit of life in the Messiah, Jesus, released you from the law of sin and death. Thanks. Paul saying Jesus releases us from the curse on humanity that the writer of Genesis 2 is telling us about. He'll keep going and say it is really about what we give our minds to. It's as if it is up to us whether we obey or disobey, whether we are sinful or not, whether we live in the flesh or in the spirit. There is a decision to be made about what we're going to do when we develop consciousness that we can do something. So he says it like this. I'll read this part. Look at it like this. People whose lives are determined by human flesh focus their minds on matters to do with the flesh. But people whose lives are determined by the spirit focus their minds on matters to do with the spirit. Focus the mind on the flesh and you'll die. But focus it on the spirit and you'll have life and peace. The mind focused on flesh, you see, is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. In fact, it can't. Those who are determined by the flesh can't please God. And then here is the encouraging part of Romans 8. But you're not people of the flesh. You're people of the spirit. He's saying, this is who you are. You do the right thing because you follow God and you obey God. You're not merely living um, of the flesh. That word flesh is complicated. And sometimes we associate it with our carnal desires. And then we superimpose like a Freudian psychology on it for some reason. And then it becomes a whole nother idea. Try, try not to philosophically extrapolate too far. Like a thousand years later or 1800 years later, as it were, to Paul's words here. Try to work with him where he is. Paul is saying clearly to me that, that whether we live in the spirit or the flesh, um, isn't a natural part of us one way or the other. It's just a matter of our uh, choice. We do get an idea, though, that there's something, there is a wrong way to live here, a fleshly way to live. But Paul says we're delivered. It's a complete verb. We are delivered as if it's a done deal because of the cross, because of Jesus and his death. Something new has happened in the world, and you are no longer bound to live that way should you have ever thought you were. This is the work, the, the work is over. Here's how he says it in, uh, in Romans 6 earlier. For now we know our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with 
that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Freedom comes because our old self was crucified with Jesus. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This is a major correction to Genesis 3, where eating from the forbidden tree causes death. Right. So you're seeing he's working right with that image. Paul is saying the crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus reverses the course of history, and now we can overcome evil, death, and our old selves. We are free. And I hear, I believe, Paul's making the argument about what we are pursuing and how we are living. You are free to pursue righteousness. Also can be translated as justice. You are, and, and, and you are free to live. It's not a statement about our being or our nature. Stop short of condemning yourself entirely just because Jesus saves you entirely. Can you, can you do that? Can we work like that? It doesn't seem like the New Testament writers still are thinking about individual humans as good or evil or even as, or even of humans or flesh as evil. One reason why I don't think that the New Testament writers in particular can hammer the evil of humans and the evil of flesh is because the whole story is based upon God becoming human. So there's something um, that is made sacred in us by Jesus' dwelling in us. There is something sacred about us because Jesus dwells in our body. It's not forever condemned. And the early church went to great lengths to explain that Jesus is of the same essence of God, both perfectly uh, human and perfectly divine. The writer of John, in their creative narrative, creation narrative, says Jesus was with God since the beginning of time and was made flesh. Same word that Paul uses in Romans 8. And the word became flesh and lived among us. We gazed upon his glory glory like that of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The word of God here from the beginning became flesh and dwelled among us. Something was wrong in the world. And and we see that today. There's something wrong in the world and it needs to be made right. What's God's big play for correcting the evil? Is Jesus. In the incarnation, Jesus dwelled in flesh like ours and gave us another chance. He uh, recapitulated humanity. He did it over again for us. He recapped humanity. He lived the right way. He obeyed God. In his crucifixion, in his crucifixion, he righted all things in the world by defeating death, the consequence of sin. And now we live freely. So in this very brief biblical uh the survey of biblical material, we get the idea that A, God, God created humanity to be very good. Humanity's fall, at least according to one story, was about the disobedience to God. And there's many other, uh, there's myriad explanations for why humans are evil in the Bible, or why people, why they do evil, I should say. That's just one of them. And then if we move to Paul, disobedience was atoned on the cross. Our old selves, crucified with Christ, were now free to be our new selves. And Paul has this image that we can be people of the spirit, not people of the flesh. 
And that very flesh, our very flesh, is made new by the incarnation of Jesus. So we have hope as people not to live as cursed to sin, but free to live. And and, and in order to get our minds around that, let's just think about what sin is for a second. My professor says that, that I liked his definition of it when he says, sin is that which diminishes life. The, the antithesis to sin is generating life, that is to say. It's not specific here. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. What is generating life in the world? What is diminishing life? It's more than an individual action. Sin isn't just, you are not the locus of the sin in the world and of the evil of the world. Sin is a condition that the world is in and that holds the world captive. And we can see it plainly around us. Right? You can see the sin of the world. You can see the creation groaning. Right, When the whole globe warms up because of the sin we've inflicted in it, you can see, oh, this is really a condition that the world is in. And it seems hopeless. Right? That, 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 that we have an answer to that hopelessness. The good news is that we've been liberated. We can see a little bit more clearly. That's exactly what the incarnation, the death, the life of Jesus does. The ultimate consequence of sin is death, and Jesus defeats death, defeats the disease of sin, the condition that enslaves us. But despite that victory, we're still swimming in sinful waters. So we have to swim against the tide. But the good news is we have the strength to swim against the tide. We have the strength to follow God, to live a life of the Spirit. Is part of our created being that remnant of sin around us? I don't think so. But it is part of our everyday life. It is our old false self, though. It is not our new transformed self. It is not our true self. Our truest selves have a nature that's like God's, right? God made us. That's, that's, that, that's, we're made of the same uh, holy stuff. And I think Jesus had a, this very broad view of sin. You go to the Sermon on the Mount and he starts saying our thoughts and our, our feelings can be sinful. Anger and lust are as bad as murder or adultery. Who can enter the kingdom of God then? It's impossible. All things are possible with God, Jesus reassures us, right? Where, Chris, where, where sin abound, grace overabound. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Jesus ups the ante of sin. No, it's much more than just doing the right thing that people can see. It's even in your mind, what you think, how you think, what you do. But grace is still bigger than that. Yes, your thoughts and feelings can diminish life, to use my professor's example. But God's grace is still bigger than your ability to mess up. You'll be forgiven endlessly, according to Jesus. Grace overbounds. It increases all the more. It gives new life. But the opportunity this new framework gives us is not just to live free of sin, to avoid life-diminishing acts, but to engage in life-giving acts and a life-giving lifestyle. We're not doing it to save ourselves. We're doing it because we're saved. 
It isn't just enough to not behave in a sinful way, but rather in a holy way. How do we do that? We create, we liberate, we reconcile, we resurrect, we create together, we build things together, we make community, we create art, we mimic the creator by trying out new things and not being afraid of failure. And the church is a great ground for that sort of creating and planting, right? We, we, we sow seeds. We're making something great, and we invite people to be part of that. We liberate, too. We fight for the freedom of the enslaved. We develop eyes to see oppression all around us. We see it in obvious ways, obvious for some of us, like the manifest racism and sexism and hatred that's all over the landscape, but also the captivity that people find themselves in, in toxic relationships, in bad work environments, in stifled imaginations even. We reconcile, we work things out together. We name life-diminishing behavior, and we move towards healing and forgiveness and repentance. Life diminishers then can join the life giver. Christians should be eager to forgive and to retain and to include, not to shun or condemn or cancel. We want people to come together and forgive each other. A reconciling community matters. But resurrection has to follow. Look for death and suffering and offer the healing life of the Spirit. Right? We do that. We plant gardens and dead lots. We put up murals in neighborhoods that people think aren't desirable. We plant seeds of hope in depressed hearts and anxious souls. We befriend lonely people. We follow in response to our resurrected Savior and engage in the work of salvation and world redemption. Right? We can do our part in saving the world. That's how grandiose this is. That's why we have to keep telling ourselves, no, we're a part of a bigger thing, and God is using us in this way. You know, the extent of our life diminishment ranges from socioeconomic to the political to the ecological but also to our relationships intimately, to our marriages, to our lives together. Our capacity to diminish life is extensive. We have to at least see that. We can even diminish life in our effort to alleviate sin. Our condemnation or perhaps our quickness to do it can be as sinful as that which we're trying to end. So the solution here is to give life, right? Join Jesus in sustaining it. Call out the best in each other when, when we're at our worst. This is personal. Lift each other up. Tell us that we can do better. Tell us you believe in us. Encourage us. Bring mutuality to, to, to the community. Remind us that Jesus conquered the grave and we can overcome our own despair and our own life diminishment and join him in waking up the rest of the world. Right? That's the work that we're engaged in. We can do it together. Right? Be life givers and not life takers. True to ourselves, True to how we were created. True to how we're redeemed. True to how we're reauthored. We can do the right thing. You're not bound by the sin that you're swimming in. You can be something else and we can be something else. Let's pray and then do some talk back, shall we? Keep being our uh, life giver, Lord, our sustainer, our creator. Keep giving us hope within us and outside of us too. Show us that we can do our part in changing the world and that we're not responsible 
to save it all on our own. But we're part of a bigger project, one that you are leading. Amen. So do you have a question or a comment or an objection to anything that I said here? There's a lot of material here I know, so you might have uh, something to say back. No, that's okay. Jordan. My my idea of this recently has been not so much that we're sinful beings, but we're hungry beings. We were created with, like, a hunger for the infinite, for God. And so this, like, fall, I see it's more like losing, like, the knowledge of what our hunger means. And now we're left with just the hunger without knowing that it, like, is something that can only be, like, filled with, like, divine life. So it's like, okay, now, now we just have a bunch of hungry people devouring things. Um, I don't know, that's, which is, for me, it's helpful just to, like, I think the kind of idea of the fall is sort of, like, reflects, I think, our desire to feel ashamed of our hungers, our desires, like, the work of sin. I don't know. Sometimes I think it feels kind of cathartic to feel guilty or ashamed of it, but it's been helpful for me to like come out with the question of like, what am I hungry for, or like, what hunger is being expressed in this thing, this pattern, or whatever. Thank you, Jordan. Any more? Yeah. The question reminded me of the novel I'm reading. It's. Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, and one of the characters is Helen Burns. She's a wonderful student in this school for uh, orphan girls. Great friend, but she's constantly reprimanded and beaten by her instructors with the switch. And the narrator, Jane Eyre, is confused as to why this is happening. She's angry about it, so she asks Helen, like, why, why do you take this? Why don't you speak out against it? And Helen says, that the teachers are right, that she is scatterbrained, disorganized, she needs to be disciplined um, in order to overcome her nature as a person. Um, but Jane sees it differently. I wish I had the quote. This is really a beautiful uh, way it's written, but Jane says that the teachers don't understand because they only see a small blight on a spectacular orb. Um, and there's this great brightness to this person that she sees, but everyone's focused on the one small dark spot, and she wishes that everyone else would appreciate the full brightness. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you for sharing that. Any more you want to say? Yeah, Robert. Um, I've been thinking a lot about addiction recently, and just uh, tapping onto Jordan's comment about um, the hunger, if I realize, at least in myself, if I'm not connected to things, like actively connected, actively planning, actively reaching out to people, I kind of go inward and I become more critical of myself and more likely to indulge in certain behaviors that I don't find really helpful. Like I'll just like, I'll just like binge something or do like that kind of thing. But I also realize that a lot of people, when they're experiencing, like, people with the opioid crisis and things like that, <clears throat> oxytocin is a natural chemical that's released when you give someone a hug. It's actually meant to create connection. Mm. And a lot of people take those. I'm wondering if they feel comforted as some, some element of connection in that, because we're all hungry for it. Mm-hmm. When we don't get it, we act out, or we, we try to get it through other means. Um, 
which it just feels, I think I identify with a lot less, a lot, I'm moving away from good and evil more like hungry, like there are different states of being and connection. The, 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 even um, I think Brene Brown mentioned, the opposite of addiction is connection. Because when you're, even people that get out of rehab, they're more likely to integrate better in society if they have actually have a framework, have a support system. If they don't, they typically go right back to it because that's their connection that they have. Um, obviously not a good Thanks, Robert. Hannah. Yeah, I think some of what Jordan said resonated with me because early on when we went through Eden, I was like, something's not sitting well with me in Eden. Like, this is not the fair. <laughs> because Wes looked at me and I was like, would you do that to me? And I said, yes, I would pick a fruit and give you a fruit. <laughs> like, that's not an action that I want to stop. That's not a habit that I want to stop. Like, I want to pick a juicy fruit and give it to my neighbor. So, what's the design problem of this garden? Yeah, there does seem to be some cosmic injustice happening with the tree that you're not supposed to eat from being in the middle of the garden and looking so great, right? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, there's no disagreement about the unusual story. It's a good thing to wrestle with, and I think it puts a lot of pressure on. If, if that if that story, that creation narrative, in the first chapter and then the second chapter, they're both different, is supposed to have cosmic consequence that explains the reality of the world. It seems really odd. Now, that's a lot of pressure on the ancient Near Eastern myth, in my opinion. Right? It's a lot about weight to put on it. Then, yeah, you're right. You know. But the, the kind of oddness of the story suspended in a context is a little bit more uh, understandable, at least for me. But that's generally how I read the Bible, and some people say, well, you don't take it very seriously at all, do you? So that's, that, that could be something that I'm working with, too. So I wanna, I'm holding both would be helpful, too. So thanks, Anna. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.